Great. Glad the heat held off this weekend as uh, we promptly broke one of the fans as we were setting up today. Do you know those little feet that come with the fans? As it turns out, they're specifically for turning it to three. One, two, no feet needed. You turn it to three and it just falls right over. Learning something new every week. Um, we are finishing our study. If you looked at the front of your bulletin, you'll notice that we've entitled it Resident Aliens. And uh, what that is is a recognition that who we are as Christians, to use the, the metaphor of Jesus himself, as citizens of the kingdom of God, that that has direct interplay with the fact that we're citizens here on earth. And so we've seen for the last two weeks um, that that heavenly citizenship, if you will, makes us better citizens uh, in terms of government and better neighbors in terms of the other citizens here on earth and this is the first and only week where we start to look at the distinction, where we're different, um, where our life should be, um, if you will, abnormal. And um, the way Jesus would have expressed it, he never put it in just these words all at once, but he refers to both of these ideas, is that we as citizens of the kingdom, we as Christians should be in the world, participants in the world, but not of the world. And so we're here, and we're present, and we're interacting, and in terms of government, as we saw, we're submitting. In terms of our neighbors, we're loving, but we're not the same. There's a difference, and that's where he turns this week. And so um, if you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 13. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew in front of or behind you, and you'll find Romans in the New Testament just past the Gospels and the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter, through verse 14 of Romans chapter 13. Let's read it together and then we'll pray. Paul writing here says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Father, as you issue this wake-up call tonight, I pray that we would hear and that we would heed. As you speak of our salvation, past, present, and future, I pray that you'd help us to understand these elements and that we would know what it is to be citizens of the kingdom of light, to walk in the light as you are in the light, um, that we would discover tonight, Lord, uh, a new facet, a new understanding of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
before we get started, it's worth mentioning here in verse 11 that, that um, our author, Paul, is in mid-stride. He says, besides this, you know the time. And it's difficult, actually, to tell what this is beside. Uh, it could be that he's referring to the fact, what he's just stated in verse 10, that love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fil fulfilling of the law. Besides loving and fulfilling the law, you know the time. That's possible. It could be that he's referring back to the whole chapter or even all the way back to chapter 12. It's probably that he's just setting, uh, setting apart uh, this reality, this context for everything we've talked about the last few weeks. What he says is, besides this, you know the time. The question, you know, we should ask ourselves here is, do we know what time it is? You know, he says, you know the time. And it's important to recognize that in the Greek language, there's different words for time. Paul selects a particular one here. We only have generally one word in the English language for time, but we use it in different ways. So if you walk up to somebody on the street and you say what time it is, they're most likely going to check their watch and give you an hour and a minute of the day. But if I say to you, now is the time, that's not just the world's most obvious statement, is it? It's not talking about the fact that we live in the present. It's talking about that this is the opportune moment, that this is a period of time that's set apart because it's the time to move. That's the word that Paul uses for time here. In fact, sometimes in the New Testament, it's actually translated as opportunities. For example, in Romans chapter, sorry, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that we need to redeem the times, or in some translations, redeem the opportunities because the days are evil. Okay? And so this is something that can be taken advantage of. It's something uh, that is contextual. It's not just something on a clock or on a calendar. It's a period. It's an age. It's a moment. It's the now. And he says, wake up and know what time it is. Okay. Now, he explains what this time is with that idea of waking. Notice what it says in the rest of 11. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Okay. So what we have here, then, is an alarm call. He says, you want to know what time it is, it's time to get up and get out of bed. That's what he says. He says, there's a distinction between the then and the now. There's been a transition from what came before and where we live now. In terms of ages, we see here an age of darkness, or the night, and an age of light, or the day. That's the image that kind of runs through this passage. Maybe as we read through it, you noticed. And this, by the way, this section of scripture here in Romans 13, 11 through 14 is repeated or re-paraphrased in some of Paul's other letters. And so if you want to dig deeper in this, you can turn, for example, to 1 Thessalonians 5, where he says the same thing, that we are children of the day. In fact, even the armor of light he mentions here, he tells us again to put on the armor of light in 1 Thessalonians 5. Or you could turn to Ephesians chapter 5, where he says, because we are children of light, let us walk in the light, uh, and then he talks about not doing the works of darkness, as he does here, but rather exposing them. And then he says this, probably quoting um, something from the practice of the early church, a little piece of liturgy that he quotes. And it says this, wake up, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
So this imagery then of day and night, of sleeping and waking, is something that Paul made it a routine to refer to as he was teaching new Christians how they should respond to what God had done in Jesus Christ. And when you, when you look at the imagery here, there's, there's a few things um, that are worth noting. The first is that this idea of night and day, of darkness and light, has much deeper roots than the New Testament. In fact, if you were to look at the writings of the Essenes, or the Qumran community, what you more likely know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, you would find many of their writings refer to these two great ages, the age of darkness and the coming age of light. In fact, it was common for Jews in the first century to separate all of time into these two great periods, the now, which is in some sense darkness, and the coming, which is light. In fact, Judaism is not the only ones to think of the ages of the world in this way, where we look at life as it is now, as we experience it as human beings, we know that something is missing, something's wrong, and we have this hope, this anticipation of something greater. Paul picks up on this imagery here, and he uses it in a very similar way, except, except, and this is important, Paul doesn't talk about the light as coming, but come. Not as future, but past. Notice here that he says, you know the time, that now is the time to wake up. In fact, when he says um, there in verse 11 that the hour has come, the emphasis is that it's been here for a while, that you've hit the snooze button a few times, if you will. The idea is that something has already changed in the universe. A day has dawned, okay? Now, as we'll see, that's not a full and complete understanding because he also, in another sense, says the day is coming. It's almost here. And so maybe it's best to see what Paul is talking about here as that dusk pre-dawn period. I think you can call it dusk even if it's in the morning. That's what we call it in the evening. But this pre-dawn period where, where the world is getting lighter but the sun hasn't actually raised over the horizon yet. That is the time that Paul is talking about. Okay. Now, he says here, as, as I mentioned, that the day has dawned. And at the same time, he says the day is dawning. He picks up on this imagery of the Essene, of the coming age, and there's some times where Paul talks about it as if it's arrived, and other times where he talks about it as if it's something we're waiting on. In this passage, he does both, if you read it closely. This isn't actually that surprising. Jesus talks the same way about the kingdom of God, or if you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. So sometimes Jesus will make statements like this. He'll say, I tell you the truth, the kingdom of God is in your midst, as in it's right in front of you, it's happening right now. Or he'll say, if I truly cast out demons by the finger of God, then surely the kingdom of God has arrived. In fact, that's what John the Baptist said before Jesus came, was that he who ushers in the kingdom is coming. But there are other occasions where Jesus talks about it as some far-off future event. When the Son of Man comes and sets up his kingdom, and he looks down the horizon. And you can actually build two very sizable piles of quotations from Jesus, some where the kingdom is now, and some where the kingdom is not yet. Okay? And as we look at the words of Jesus, as we try and analyze this, what we discover is there's a sense where something new happens in Jesus Christ. But it's not done yet. It's not finished. 
what theologians like to say is that the kingdom of God in Jesus, in his coming, death, burial, resurrection, was inaugurated. It began, but it's not consummated. It's not fully present. Like that image of the sunrise, the light is here. The sun is clearly coming. There's no stopping it now. It's almost morning, but the sun hasn't risen yet. That's the period that Paul is talking about here. The second thing that worth, uh, is worth pointing out here is that he points out that there's a difference between the night and the day. That there are things that make up nighttime and there are things that make up daytime, and he draws a pretty firm line between them. Okay? And it's worth pointing out, just, just for sake of argument, that this is a pre-electric era that Paul is writing in. Okay? So for those of you who have ever held a night job, that is not a thing in Paul's day. Unless you're a shepherd, and even then you're catching as much sleep as you can, you just happen to be working while you're sleeping, uh, he is making these distinctions between nighttime and daytime very hard line. Okay? Now, notice here, the first distinction he makes has to do with sleep. What does he say that Christians should be doing here? He says, because it's time to wake up, we should wake up. Because it's, it's uh, as he says in verse uh, 12, uh, sorry, in verse 11, he says, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Verse 12, the night is far gone and the day is at hand. Okay? He says, it's time to wake up. And once again, recognize that he roots that in something that's already happened. Listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, one of the things that you have to recognize is that the language that the Bible uses to describe the transition from not Christian to Christian is climactic. It's crisis language. It's darkness to life. It's death, or sorry, darkness to light. It's death to life. It's a completely different world. And the image it uses here is from sleeping to waking. And it's worth recognizing uh, that although externally, when we look at a sleeping person, there's a very big difference between somebody who's asleep and awake. If you're the one experiencing it, that difference gets very small, doesn't it? Right? What can you do in dreams? You can talk. Uh, you can have arguments. There's emotions in dreams. I mean, I'm sure you've all woken up from dreams that disturb you so much that your emotions spill into your waking life. Um, in fact, dreams are so real and so tangible, especially in those first few moments, sometimes we have a hard time discerning between what is real and what was just a dream. Right? I have woken up after having arguments with dream wife and been mad at real wife. I've had moments where I believed that I sold a bunch of old video games and put the cash in a box under my bed and I've gotten on my knees and looked. Uh, and and not, not been like, oh, it was just a dream, but wait, where's my money, right? Maybe I'm the only one who dreams in this way, but it's worth pointing out here that in Paul's understanding, there's one major difference between the dreamer and the, the waking person. Nobody brings this out better than Charles Spurgeon, and this is what he points out. You can talk and dream or, and speak in dreams. You can think in dreams. You can argue. You can go places. You accomplish things in dreams. There's truly only one difference, Spurgeon says, between the dreamer and the one who's awake, and that's the fact that when the dreamer wakes up, everything he believes to be true, everything that he loves, everything that he cares about will be gone because it's not real. All right? Now, biblically, clearly, God uses dreams in real ways. There's such things as dreams and visions and God speaking through dreams, but that doesn't tear down the distinction at all. 
that the general nature of dreams is that it's something that you wake up from. And so the big picture he's giving us here of the transition for the Christian life is one from unreality to reality. That's how big this transition is. You have to understand this, especially if you're not a Christian tonight. You have to recognize uh, that if Jesus was God in the flesh, as he claimed to be, if he really did die for your sins, if he really did raise again from the dead, if he really did ascend to the Father and stand at his right hand and intercedes for you to this day, and as we'll see in a moment, if he's really coming back, then everything you know is wrong. Some of the things you value, you have wrongly valued. That some of the things that you think are most important in life may not be as important as other things. That some of the things that may seem to you like obvious issues will not be obvious anymore. Have you ever had that experience in a dream where, uh, where you're so convinced of something being interesting or funny, uh, where you, you dream up... Um, well, I'll give you an example because it happened to me last night. On Saturday nights for me, I don't generally sleep well, especially if I don't feel like I've pinned the text. For me, studying the Bible is like wrestling. And sometimes I'm like, okay, I, I have this, I understand it. Other times I don't. Last night was one of those nights. And so what this means for me in sleep cycle is that it's somewhat fitful. And every time I break back into consciousness, I think about the sermon. And then I fade back into sleep and I come in. And I was so convinced I had a great approach for this text. And I woke up this morning, and I was brushing my teeth, and I'm re -go going through it. And I went, that's total nonsense. That doesn't make any sense at all, right? Have you had this experience? This is what Paul is saying here is the difference between the life before Jesus and after. In fact, one of the great images that the Bible uses uh, darkness and light as a metaphor for is ignorance and revelation. Paul says this to the, to the people of Athens. He says that all of us are human, as human beings are groping about in the dark trying to find God. If you're looking for God, if you're seeking to understand, I actually think that's a pretty appropriate metaphor. It feels like that. How do you know that God is there? How do you know when you know that you've found him? It has this element, just like when you're in the dark and you're looking for the light switch and it, you can't seem to find it. But the way that it speaks of Jesus is that he is light. In fact, it says in the prologue to John's gospel in John chapter 1 that the word was the light and that the darkness did not overcome it. That he shone in such a bright way it wasn't hidden anymore. Which, by the way, is what light does. You can't actually hide light. You can block it from coming in, but if it's in, you'll see it. And so the idea then, the picture uh, that the New Testament constantly uses of Jesus is that he makes God known. When we use the word revelation, this is what we mean. We don't just mean like the book of Revelation, hard to understand future stuff. We mean God has revealed himself. And primarily, he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Are you familiar with the phrase, the tyranny of knowledge? Okay, The tyranny of knowledge means once you know something, it's hard to remember what it was like to not know it. Okay? And this is true in all fields, and actually Christians suffer from this all the time. We're sometimes terribly arrogant, and we're like, man, why can't that person just believe in Jesus? But we've forgotten. We, we, we suffer from the tyranny of knowledge. But the recognition here that Paul is making is if, if you've woken up, if you've had that momentary lapse of reason, or not lapse of reason, but lapse of dreaming, and you go, 
okay, this is the real world, I'm in my bed, everything I just knew was false, you can't very easily go back. You may roll over and go back to sleep because it was a good dream, but you can't go roll over and go back to sleep because it was real, right? That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying there's a sense where what Jesus has done is such great interference, it's such a transition from groping in the dark to experiencing revelation, to encountering the living God. It's the difference between asking questions out into the dark and hearing a voice say, this is who I am. That's what we're talking about here. That's the distinction. And what he says is, if you've woken up, get up. That's the picture that he draws here. Now, like I said, he sees this as a past event, that, uh, that Jesus is coming, that his existence as a human being, born a baby, lived a Jew, died an innocent, uh, an innocent man on a cross, and then, like I said, buried and raised and ascended, that these things divide the ages, that this is the marking of the, literally, of a dawn of a new age, that the coming of the Son of God was, in some ways, the, the rising of the sun into a new time, into a completely different age. But then notice what he says next. He says in the tail end of verse 11, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Is that past, present, or future? It's future. And not only is he looking forward, but what he's looking forward to he calls salvation. If you've been coming to this church very regularly, you know that one of the things I emphasize all the time is that the unique aspect of Christianity is that you get the salvation up front. That it's not you run the race and when you cross the finish line, if you've done well enough, then you're saved. But the salvation is where the Christian life begins, not where it ends. And yet here, Paul puts it in the future tense and he uses it as a reason for why we should get up out of bed. Now, just referring to that earlier illustration, that does make sense if we're talking about that pre-dawn period. You wake up in the morning, and you don't wake up because the light is shining. In one sense, you wake up because the sun is coming up. It's an in-process thing. But what I want you to notice this morning is it doesn't change the fact that he says salvation is future. Now, if you become a student of the New Testament, you'll discover that it actually talks about this particular word and this particular concept, salvation, in all three tenses. So it's just as appropriate for me, if you're a Christian tonight, to say, you were saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. But what I want you to notice here is Paul grounds his admonition, most of which is coming, his exhortation to us this morning, not just in the fact that the light has come, but that the day is coming. Okay? And he says, our salvation is drawing nearer. Now, what is he talking about? He is talking about the return of Jesus. Okay? He's talking about not just the fact that Jesus has come, so we should get out of bed, but Jesus is coming back, so we should get out of bed. That's the picture language he's talking here. And I just want to recognize that, especially for many of you who are younger, some of whom grew up in churches uh, that talked about the return of Jesus a lot, and others who are new to Christianity and have only seen what's hit the movie theaters and you know the literature stands on these things, uh, that this has become a place of discomfort and contention. Wherever side you've grown up on, it's, it's something where you're like, oh man, I mean, do we really have to talk about the fact that Jesus is coming back? Is this, for one, is this, is this a real thing, or have we just misunderstood the scriptures, or, or maybe a nuanced version of it is, I think it's a real thing, but this is, this is a minor doctrine. This isn't that big of a deal. What's important here is that Jesus has come, that he's coming back 
that's open to interpretation. It's not really a mainline thing. Here's what you need to understand tonight. Every single New Testament author, not just the ones like Paul who wrote 13 books, but the ones who wrote a single book like Jude, every single New Testament author, author refers to the coming of Jesus, the coming back of Jesus, the return of Jesus. Every single one. When you add up the references, it's well over 300 times. Listen, the idea that Jesus was returning is not just a major doctrine for the first century church. It's a lens through which they view their entire lives. Okay? It is not something that can be pushed to the side. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be obsessed with the details. Okay? One of the great mistakes that the church has made, I think, is that we've taken this idea of what we call eschatology, the study of the end times, and it's become an end of itself. And so what happens is we have prophecy conferences, and if you come from a Calvary background like I do, that's actually for a very good reason. We believe that the Bible is God's revelation, that it's meant to be understood, and we believe that he actually references things that are coming for our good. And so we want to know what those things are. The problem is, the general byproduct, the general consequence of prophecy conferences, I've observed, is more prophecy conferences. What it breeds is experts and debates and arguments and deep studies, all of which are fine, but when the New Testament church, when Paul here talks about the coming of Jesus, it doesn't lead to more study, it leads to getting to work. In fact, that's how Jesus talks about it. Jesus himself talks, as I said, not just about this is what I'm doing right now, but this is what I'll come back to finish. He does this throughout his ministry. And whenever he does, he always gives us three W's. Either he says, therefore, watch. In other words, be prepared, wait, you know, be patient, uh, or work. Those are the three things that Jesus tells us to do because he's coming back. And this is the same thing Paul says here. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, since Jesus is coming soon, you might as well stay in bed, right? See, this is the danger that we sometimes get into. Um, we have to recognize, in fact, let me deal with this in a broader sense. Some people read verses like this and go, okay, yeah, Paul says salvation is nearer than it's ever been, and when you read the rest of his works, it sure seems like Paul was expecting Jesus next Thursday. And there are some who even argue that in Paul's earlier books, he's more apocalyptic, more focused on the coming of Jesus than later, that this is something he's finally got to the point where he's like, well, if Jesus isn't really coming back, then I'm going to kind of talk differently about a few things. Um, sometimes a poor reading of Jesus's words themselves will lead you to the fact where it's like, well, didn't Jesus say he'd be back before the generation was over? If you read those passages closer, that's not a very satisfying understanding. But here's the distinction. For Paul, the return of Jesus wasn't immediate, like next Thursday. He recognized, just as Jesus said, that no man knows the day or the hour. Now, if you're not a Christian tonight and you don't think of the end of the world in terms of Jesus' return, just recognize that simply, that for you as a person and for us as a race, and for the universe as a whole, we can't discern the moment it all ends. Most science right now points to a beginning, and so it's appropriate then to assume a matching end. You know, science itself tells us that, uh, that for every action is an equal and opposite reaction. So if the universe is an opening of a box, someday the box will be closed. 
But the reality is here, we all live in the tension not knowing how many tomorrows we get. Okay? That's a true thing. But it's not that Jesus will return immediately that Jesus emphasizes, that Paul in the New Testament emphasizes. It's that his return is imminent. Okay? Once again, I'm th throwing common theological terms at you, so let me unpack this idea. Imminent means there's nothing that need precede Jesus' return. That there's no, uh, there's no great event in history that we're waiting for and we go, can go, okay, now Jesus can come back. There are signs of the ends of the time, things to be watching for, but as Paul says in Thessalonians, in a passage that almost entirely matches this one, that Jesus' return will come like a thief in the night. Okay? Now, let me just point out something obvious. Thieves don't generally call you and say, I was thinking of robbing you at 3 a.m. next Tuesday. Are, are you going to be home? Is that okay? Right? That's the idea of a thief in a night, is that you don't expect it. Okay? So imminent is the idea here, that Jesus could come at any time. And this may be giving Paul the benefit of the doubt here, but when he says our salvation, this future happening, is nearer to us now than when we first believed, that is... A little obvious, is it not? That if we're talking about the end of the race and all of us are currently running it, with every step we get closer to the finish line. It doesn't matter if we know where the finish line is. That's just the process of time and how it plays out in our lives. But what he's recognizing here, what he's recognizing here is as a Christian, notice he's talking to those who believe, as a Christian, you're closer to the end than you were yesterday. Once again, it's somewhat common sense, but we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, do we? There's only a few occasions in human life where we start to look more at the end than at the beginning. There's the midlife crisis, right? Which we've appropriately labeled in such a way that you cannot shake the fact that you may have less days ahead than you have behind. Uh, there's, there's the day where you get old enough and the most common portion of the newspaper for you to read is the obituaries, right? It is true that older people are more familiar with their mortality, but the point Paul is making here is if it made sense for you to live awake yesterday, it makes a lot more sense today. That's the point that he's making. If you haven't got out of bed yet, if you're not living in the day, the reality is if you can look around and you can see the general objects of your room, even if you can't discern the colors, the sun is further up in the skyline than it was when everything was dark. With every passing moment, it gets higher, and the day comes closer, and it draws nearer. See, if the return of Jesus was immediate, then what would be appropriate behavior for us as Christians? Sell everything we have, um, you know, write a nice letter to all our friends, find a hillside with a good view, sit, and wait. Okay? But that's not what we see Jesus asking us to do. It's not what we see the New Testament doing. This is another way, I think, that this idea of uh, the coming of Jesus can go wrong. In fact, many people who are uncomfortable with this doctrine, even pastors and commentators, their big concern is, look, if you get too obsessed with the fact that Jesus is coming back, you're just going to retire from life as it is, and the church will just stop doing the work. I honestly and personally believe, and I think Paul would agree with me, I recognize that's putting a pretty big person in my bullpen here, uh, I think Paul would agree that a proper and right understanding of the fact that Jesus is coming back will make you work harder, will make you love more, will, will draw you deeper into the Christian life and deeper into the world and not further out of it, okay? 
that's how the New Testament understood it. That's how our author and our audience understood these things here. What he says is our salvation, the return of Jesus, is closer now than it's ever been, so get up. So wake up. The day is dawning. Look at what he says in verse 12. He emphasizes it again. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Now he gets to what he wants us to do. What does he mean when he says wake up? He says, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Okay. Now, we find here a slightly different metaphor than the one we were working with. Sleep and awake was drawing on the idea of ignorance and revelation, of knowledge. But here the idea of darkness and light is an ethical one. It's the recognition that we associate dark with evil and light with good. Once again, this is not just merely a Jewish or a Christian distinction. It's something that's very common in human thinking that when we picture these things, we do it in this language. Now, what's intriguing here is that Paul codifies our lives as Christians into a time where darkness makes sense and a time where light makes sense. A time where the works of darkness are present and make sense and a time uh, where he calls the armor of light is more appropriate. He's not here justifying that, hey, there was a period of time that was night and you could get away with murder. Uh, but now it's daytime, so you better shape up. That's not the idea. The picture that he's drawing here is not like God is playing some sort of divine red light, green light. And he's just for an age been turning his back and now he's turned around and he's watching, so you better watch out. That's not the idea here. What he's recognizing is that there's a general relationship between darkness and bad behavior. Okay. I have a friend, and he used to counsel young men that nothing good ever happens after 2 a.m. And as much as you'd like to laugh at that, I've found it to be true. Uh, the reality is the handful of times that I have stolen things in my life did not happen at noon. They didn't. They happened in the middle of the night. Uh, we could recognize as well, take, he, he's going to mention drunkenness by name. Why is it that if somebody, you know, uh, pops open the wine bottle at 9 a.m., they have to say something about the time to justify it? It's 5 o'clock somewhere in the world, right? Why? Because there's an understanding we have that there's a time to drink, and then there's a time that doesn't make any sense to drink, okay? In fact, I think we would recognize that although... Um, well, here, just to give one more illustration, since you mentioned sexuality, I'm making an assumption here, but it's a pretty solid one, that the red light district in Amsterdam is a 24-hour venue. I assume that's probably the case. But it has a nightlife nonetheless, right? It's the same thing that we're talking about here. In fact, John, in his gospel, says that men do not want to come into the light because they don't want their works to be revealed. There's things that people don't want to be known. It's not just ignorance and knowledge on who God is. It's ignorance and knowledge on what I'm doing, right? I want to keep it hidden. I want to keep it in the dark. And Paul's recognition here is more than just a shame recognition. Although the Bible does say that, that everything that is hidden will be revealed. What Paul is saying here is that these dark behaviors don't make sense for those who know it's daytime. Now, notice here, he refers to casting away the works of darkness. Cast them off, and he says, put on the armor of light. Now, the idea of cast off there 
draws the concept of clothing, and it's completed. This image is c- completed by the idea of put on, right? Take off and put on. That's what Paul says. In fact, that's a common ethical metaphor that Paul uses, to take off these things and put on these things instead. When he ties it here to mourning, though, it's somewhat appropriate to think about our mourning clothing rituals. And I'm not saying here that the works of darkness are like pajamas. That's clearly not what Paul means, but it does provide us with, I think, a helpful picture. You see, for some of you who are older, you probably didn't experience this, but by the time I was in junior high, for some people, it became okay to wear pajamas to school, okay? There are very few things that I hate more than people who show up in a public place still in their pajamas. And part of it, honestly, might just be because I am not allowed in public in what I wear to bed. And so maybe it's just jealousy. But more likely, it's this. If you show up in pajamas, then I know you haven't showered this morning. I know that you've put no effort into being in this place and that this is really just a less comfortable bed. And so here is your desk, and this is where you would be sleeping if you could, right? There's, there's an inconsistency there with the way you're dressed and what you're supposed to be doing, okay? Like I said, that's not exactly what Paul is saying here, but notice something. He doesn't just tell us to put on our school uniform. He says, put on our armor of light. Now, suddenly, this becomes a little bit more life and death. It becomes a little bit more serious. Paul is not just saying that there's evening wear and that there's your day job clothes. He's saying that they're for a purpose. And that the purpose that we're living for this daytime, the job that you're going to, is military in nature. That's the picture he uses. He doesn't say you're putting on a uniform. He says you're putting on armor. And let me remind you here that this is not modern military camo that we're talking about. This is high-grade metal for, for combat armor. Now how likely are you to be to step out in your pajamas? Okay? That's the emphasis that I want you to get tonight. Paul is not just saying there's an appropriate way to dress. He's saying there's a safe way to dress. He's saying that you're headed out into a battlefield. Warren Wearsby, the the preacher of no small fame, says that many people don't understand that the Christian life is not a playground, but a battleground. And it's metaphors like this, pictures like this, that he's referring to. The understanding is, although there are a lot of good things in Christian life, when it says the day is dawning here, that doesn't mean that the work is done. In fact, does it ever mean that, except for those of you who have night jobs? It means the work is just beginning. And so, yes, there is an appropriate and entire sense that I will hammer all day long that the work is finished when you become a Christian. You are saved. Jesus paid it all. Uh, It is finished. These words are appropriate applications to the beginning of the Christian life. I don't care if you've been a Christian for three minutes. That's the truth. But there's another sense where the work is just beginning. What he recognizes here is that clothing, if you will, and habits go together. That's the emphasis he's making. He'll draw this out later on. What I want you to recognize is when he says put on the armor of light, he's saying that the Christian life is one that involves a bit of preparedness. That it's something you got to suit up for. That's the emphasis that he's making. And so whereas he was talking about the transition from ignorance to knowledge and how hard it is to live as if these things weren't true, now he's talking about the reality that if you now see that there's a struggle, if you now see that there's a fight, 
Listen, what I'm saying here is when the Bible says that we're children of light and then says, therefore, walk as children of light, it's not just talking about decisions like, oh, I'm supposed to be a good person now? Okay. It always and consistently recognizes a difficulty there. Let me speak to you from my own personal experience when I became a Christian. Okay? It's not that like a switch was thrown and I was a completely different person, but there was some major changes, and one of them had to do with desires. And it wasn't that all of my old desires went away. It was that I now had new competitive desires. They were in contrast with one another. So whereas I used to have a whole list of things that I liked to do, and I determined what those were, and I pursued them as much as I could, you know, sometimes without getting caught, if that's what it took, now I had these new desires that had never been things I wanted in my life, and those two things were contrary. That's where the battle is. That's where the fight is. Paul's already talked about this in Romans. He's already emphasized the fact that when you become a Christian, to some degree, that's where the struggle begins. It's as if God has given you a second nature, and the natures are at war. And so what he says here is that that process, that walk, the life we're called to live as Christians, takes some amount of preparation. It takes a putting off and a putting on. And the putting on is not just equal and opposite, it's the elements of warfare. I mentioned earlier that Paul uses the same metaphor in Ephesians 5 and 1 Thessalonians 5. All three of them he talks about armor. In Ephesians, he actually gets really explicit and walks through your actual equipment. He opens up the armory and he says, okay, this is the sword that is the word of God. This is the helmet of salvation. This is the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. And he uses, by the way, a slightly different set of armor in Thessalonians and refers to it there. And we'll come back to what exactly he's saying here. The only thing that I want you to get right now is this idea of preparedness. That if the day is here, you should live differently because you know differently. But if the day is here, you also need to prepare to live it out. That's the emphasis that Paul is making. So here we get to his actual exhortation, verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy. So he says here there's a proper way to live. When it says walk, that's what it's talking about. A proper way to live if it's daytime. And then he gives us a list of how not to live. And all those things fall into that earlier category we were talking about of things that make more sense at night. Okay? He mentions uh, orgies, which in this context the word means uh, partying like the every night of the week partying, the living for the party idea, drunkenness, uh, sexual infidelity, these are the things that he mentions. But notice, notice the last two are quarreling and jealousy. Don't some of you find that old Sesame Street song going through your head? One of these things is not like the others. And if I were to ask you, if I just put those six things on the table and said, which two of these don't belong? Every single time, would you not pick quarreling and jealousy? See, here's something that we as Christians need to recognize, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, something you need to recognize, because we as Christians don't always recognize it. It's that Paul sees all these things on an equal playing field. There is a tendency, and sometimes it's worse in the church, to talk about bad sins and sins, but lowercase s sins. You know? uh, the Catholic Church has codified this, and so you have mortal sins and venial sins. Sins that will kill you, and then just you know, little damaging sins. Okay? This requires a band-aid. This requires something more. 
Paul here, he says we're to cast off all the works of darkness, and he lists six things. I don't think it's a complete list, but it's a broad enough list that we can't just excuse certain behaviors as not being that big of a deal. Okay? The reality is sin and darkness go together. The reality is you cannot know the God who is holy and justify all of these unholy actions like you once could. Okay? If God is holy, if Jesus' death paid for our forgiveness, if salvation is freely available to us in Christ Jesus, if he's given us the Holy Spirit so now we can be obedient to God, if all these things are true, these things don't make sense anymore. Tonight, I just want to emphasize one angle from which that's the case, and that goes back to this idea of dreaming and waking. Okay? What I want you to understand tonight is the things on these lists are not things just that Christians shouldn't do. They're things that we no longer have to do. Okay? Plato, the philosopher, in his, uh, in his probably best-known work, The Republic, he comes up with this metaphor for enlightenment that we know as Plato's cave. Maybe you've heard of it. Plato's cave is not in Greece or in Italy. It's an idea, okay? And the idea is very simple. This is the way he paints it. He says, it's as if we all as human beings are born in a cave and the entrance to the cave is behind us and there's a fire in the cave behind us and everything we know and see and experience and call life is just the shadows on the wall. And he says, enlightenment is when you get up and you leave the cave and you, you discover real life, okay? That's the idea of enlightenment to, to Plato, is that you come out of the cave and it's not just shadows anymore, it's reality, okay? You can see how that's an appropriate metaphor for what we're talking about. As I said, if you become a Christian, if you encounter Jesus Christ, there's a sense where everything you know is wrong. It's drastic, it's crisis, it's death and life. It's darkness and light. And what Paul says here, when he lists all these things that no longer are appropriate, no longer are fitting, is that these things are just shadows. That we're settling for shadows when there's real life to be had. You see, this is something we don't always understand. We think that the problem is that God's created all these restrictions of things we shouldn't do, and there's some sort of arbitrary nature to them. They're just stuff he doesn't like. If you're familiar with the comic, Eugene Merman, his suggestion when he looks at the Old Testament law is that maybe God is autistic. And he says, because some of the laws make perfect sense. And then he's like, but don't eat horses. Right? It's, it's just, it doesn't seem to make sense to us sometimes. But the reality, the reality is very possibly, as C.S. Lewis puts it, that we, our problem as human beings is not that we desire too much. That God says you can't have this, you can't have this, and we want all those things. But that we desire too little. That we settle for sex and drink and food when God is offering us infinite joy and pleasure. He says we're like children making mud pies in the backyard who refuse a trip to the sea because they don't know what the beach is. Okay? It's Plato's cave. All of these things drunkenness and orgies, sexual immorality and sensuality, they're all settling for shadows. It is appropriate for someone who doesn't know God to say, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Not appropriate as in it's justifiable, but it makes sense. Let me put it in popular culture terms. The song turned down for what? 
Do you know what turn down means? It means get sober. The great question that that song is asking is, what's worth being sober over? For the Christian, we have an answer. There's a whole lot of life available to be sober for. And it's not, it's not just these things on our plane that we've all, always experienced, the things that you'd bring up in an intervention and say, well, it's worth being sober for family and friends to hold down a job and provide for yourself and add something to society. No, there's something greater. It's that what you're looking for when you turn to alcohol is available in full strength in a completely different category from God himself. Sexuality. We mentioned this a few weeks ago. Sex, in even its most banal and non-committal version, even if it's completely anonymous, is always searching for intimacy. We want to know and to be known. There was a fascinating article in The Stranger a few weeks ago about webcam girls. And it was talking about how many men show up in these sites, uh, you know, wanting what you would expect from a webcam interaction, and they end up becoming friends with and spending time with uh, the girl on the other side of the camera, and they build these little communities around them. And the reason is because they may not know it, but they're not just looking for an orgasm. They're looking for intimacy. And the greatest and deepest need we have as human beings to know and to be known is not on the horizontal level at all. It's on the vertical, to know God and to be known by God. And so as C.S. Lewis said, so often we're settling. We're settling for all of these mad grabs at little shadow versions. For the Christian, the reason why this doesn't make any sense it's like if we take Plato's cave as, as an image, we walk up into the world, we look around, we see the sun. And we see not just shadows, but real things, not just 2D shades, but 3D objects as they really are. We see all the color that life has to offer and we go, I think I'd like to go eat a shadow burger, right? It doesn't make any sense. That's what Paul is saying here. It's that the life you maybe once lived before you were a Christian is not something you need anymore. And let me point out something to you. At the deepest level, all the things on this list, everybody knows doesn't satisfy. When the Rolling Stones say, I can't get no satisfaction, that's what they're recognizing, is there's a, there's a missing component of contentment. It's not that they're not looking to be satisfied, it's that they can't find it. But for us as Christians, we can know and experience that satisfaction. Listen, guys, there's a reality that this passage is somewhat about the fact that you are saved and somewhat about the fact that you are going to be saved, but clearly it's also about the fact that you are being saved, present tense. It's about your day-to-day -day life as it is now. You know what's fascinating? When we use the word in Christianity, eternal life, we almost always think of that as something that starts the day you die, right? There's this life, and then there's eternal life. You know how John's gospel talks about it? He says eternal life begins when you become a Christian. Because it's not just a quantity thing, it's a quality thing. This is, in fact, he says, this is eternal life. To know God and his son Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And there's a consummate way, a complete way that that will happen in the future. But there's a real way where it can happen right now. Paul says this about our Christian life in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, right now... Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus is available to us. That's for life today. 
Now, it doesn't deny the fact that he still sees greater things in the future. He goes on to say that God's entire plan is to show us his inexhaustible kindness for eternity. In fact, he goes on to say that God has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. In other words, the Christian life as we know it, lived to the fullest, is only the beginning of what it looks like to truly know and live with God. But it's available to us right now. And what Paul is saying is if the day is really dawning, if you've come to your senses and you're no longer dreaming, don't go back and settle. Now maybe you're going, well, I can see how that might be the case with drunkenness and sexuality, but what about quarreling? Listen, if you were a Christian, you're not just arguing for something you want. You're arguing with someone created in the image of God. You're arguing with someone who Jesus gave his life for. You're arguing with someone who you've been called to love as much as yourself. There's a sense where quarreling as a Christian doesn't make sense anymore. Same with jealousy. Are you really going to be jealous of their, you know, of their shadow hummer? Are you going to be jealous of their shadow house? When all the things, all of those things are needs and normal and necessary and fine, but all of those things reflect deeper desires of the heart what if it what if the need in your heart is a vertical hole and you're constantly trying to fill it with horizontal things at best you get a lid right you can probably hide the hole from everyone else because you're the guy who has and not the guy who has not but you're empty it's only something vertical that's made to fit that will fill the hole it says in the book of ecclesiastes that man was born with eternity in our hearts that hole is too big to fill with a new car. You know what we're talking about here? We're talking about inflation. Paul puts it in a way in Philippians that I can't remember, but you can go and read the book and you'll find it somewhere. But, but this is what it's always reminded me of. Effectively, what Paul says is when you become a Christian, it's as if you've lived your entire life and your whole savings was a quarter. And you loved that quarter and you polished that quarter, and everything in your life was about that quarter, and then you inherit billions. It's not actually that the quarter is worth less, but in relationship to what you have, it's just not that big of a piece of the pie anymore. That's what we're talking about when we talk about jealousy. For the Christian life, the good things that God has given you are more than a sufficient, they're abundant. And so it doesn't make sense. But remember, what we're talking about here, it may be the difference between nonsense and common sense, but that doesn't mean it's natural or easy. Over and over again, the Bible says we can't do these things without supernatural help. And here in this passage, it's the same. It requires preparation. He says it again in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Once again here, the idea is of preparation. Now, when it says, make no provision for the flesh, first clarification, he's not talking about fasting. Sometimes when we talk about the flesh, we're talking about flesh and bone, right? There is a thinking, a very religious thinking that says, I will be more spiritual, I will be more obedient, I will be more close to God if I just stop being so good to my body, right? But Paul points out in Colossians that that's a trap, that it has all the appearance of holiness but it's pretty easy to disprove. When was the last time you went out with a went without a meal for a couple of hours? Were you a better person or a worse person? That's what I thought, okay? There's this reality where it makes you feel good about yourself, like you're more righteous, but it doesn't actually make any progress 
in obedience and righteousness. When he says here, make no provision for the flesh, what he's recognizing is that before you were a Christian, you put a lot of planning into terrible things. Plotting. When you read make no provision for the flesh, you know what I think of? Making a lunch. That's the idea is don't make a sack lunch for your flesh. Okay? Here's the point. Most of what you do in your life is premeditated. And sometimes it's premeditated in the sense where you actually come up with a plan, which, by the way, it's generally nighttime activity, is it not? It even says in Proverbs that the wicked lie in their bed and plot. And chances are, if you're like me, you've done that too, right? You go to bed angry, and in your waking moments, you're not wandering through some weird dream you had. You're plotting. You're coming up with a way for vengeance, right? It's pre- premeditated, but even when it's not, because let's recognize that a lot, of, um, a lot of the most worst things we do in our life come out of nowhere. They're in the heat of the moment. In fact, they surprise us. We never would have expected we were capable of that. The words come out of our mouth, and we're just as shocked as the person we said that to, right? We respond to an instant, and, and all we can say is we just flew off the handle. It was like an incredible Hulk moment. I was completely out of control. Listen, all of that, all of it is premeditated. Maybe it's in smaller chunks and longer, but let's just recognize that a pot never boils over unless it's been cooking for a while. And if you'd like to believe that those worst moments aren't who you are, they're really when the lid comes off. They're really the most revealing parts of you, the most, uh, most deepest looks at, at the deepest reality, and it all comes from this fact that where the problem is for human beings is in our hearts. And it doesn't have to manifest to be there and to fester and to grow. Make no provision for the flesh. flesh. Listen, the imagination is something that Christians haven't always valued, but it's God-given. But it can be used in two different ways. You can dream of shadows. You can stoke the desires for wickedness. But you can also, as it says here, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's clear to me that when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and when he says, put on the armor of light, he's talking about the same thing. And so I could easily just sum up your questions by saying, well, how do you put on Jesus? Well, you put on the armor of light. Well, how do you put on the armor of light? Well, you put on Jesus, right? It, it, it'd be easy to excuse that, but I think this is what um, the New Testament is talking about when it says this. It's recognizing the fact that there's a lot of things you know about your relationship with Christ. There's a lot of things that God has revealed about the world through Jesus Christ. There's a lot of knowledge that you've, you've experienced and know, but you don't really know. You haven't held it up and pondered it. You haven't ingested it and made it your own. You haven't, in this sense, put on Jesus Christ. You want to know what changes the way you live? It's learning who you are. This is about identity, okay? That's why in Ephesians says that we should walk as children of light. Or as it says in Colossians, we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the, the light of his marvelous son, okay? We're talking about identity here. What Paul says when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, is to take hold of mentally, to use your imagination to consider, to remind yourself, to preach to yourself of what Jesus has done for you and how many things that changes. Okay? The Bible says that you are forgiven. 
if you really understand that, then a lot of your patterns of guilt and shame and compensation, a lot of your ways of trying to justify yourself, the need to try and prove yourself to everybody, those things will change if you can just take hold of the fact that you were forgiven. If it's really true that you were adopted, that you now have the full love and approval of God, then you won't be so needy to seek from, from other places. I heard a pastor say this once, and it's always stuck with me, that Jesus' love will make you need people less and love them more. This is the idea. Like we saw last week, that there's so much love available to us in Christ Jesus that there's more than we can use. And so we can share it with everyone we encounter. If the Bible really means it, when it says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that in some way that is not just metaphor, that God now resides in you and you were bought with a price and you are not your own and you can take hold of those truths, you will begin to live them. And like I said, this is not burdensome. It's freeing. It's not just that you can't do these things anymore. It's that you no longer need to. It's that you no longer have to settle for shadows. But it does take preparation. Paul says, since it's time to wake up, since the sun is coming, since the day is rising, since you've been saved and you will be saved, live every day putting on these things, reminding yourselves of these truths, preaching them to you when you get up in the morning and when you fail, and stop premeditatively making provisions for the flesh. Stop all of that preparedness that you put into all these other things. This is the message that Paul is calling us to. And notice that this, this has to do with what we've been talking about. This whole series in Romans 13 has been about what it looks like to live on earth. And it does look different. But not because we're better people. Not because you're darkness and we're light. But because we have encountered this great and tremendous and loving, satisfying light. And we can never go back. That's the difference here. In fact... Let me point out to you that when you live like this, it's the best thing you can do for the world. So often when we hear live differently, it, it's somehow pushing away the world, right? It's, it's stay away and don't be tainted. That's not the idea. Here's how Leslie Newbegin puts it using the same imagery. He says that the church is the, is the witness of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's a totally appropriate thing to say, is it not? That's what Jesus told us to be, witnesses. When we evangelize, we're witnessing. He says, but it's not the locus of the witness. The locus of the witness is Jesus himself. And this is how he describes it. And notice it's the same imagery we're talking here. He says, Christians are those who have turned around to face the coming sun. They're not the light, but it's reflected on their faces. And if you want to know if it's true, you can't just look at the people. Eventually, you have to turn around and look at the sun. But the reality is, when you live like this, not just a righteous life or a holy life, but a satisfied life, it says, maybe there's something more that I know. Maybe I'm only dreaming. And once again, the whole world knows this. We all have those moments where the black cat comes across our paths twice, and we go, maybe there's a glitch in the matrix, and none of this is real. There's those moments, even in our dreaming life, our actual physical dreams, where we go, 
this isn't real, right? To me, actually, that's the most freeing thing that can happen in a dream because then you're safe, you're in control. We all have that experience, but when we live it as Christians, part of what makes the witness of the church is everything the world knows, there's something more. Life is worth living. Turn down for what? Well, I'll tell you what, right? It's a different thing. It's satisfaction. It's contentment. It's joy and peace. And Jesus says he doesn't give the world or give peace like the world gives, but he gives it and won't take it back. These are the things that we're talking about, okay? So I would like to finish tonight very simply is just to read the passage through again, and then we'll pray. Listen, besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for, for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would wake us up, that we would rouse ourselves from sleep, that we would wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on us, like Paul says in Ephesians. I pray, God, that we would learn what it looks like to prepare for the daytime, that our lives would be a testimony that we are no longer asleep, that we've stepped out of the darkness, that these things are no longer appropriate, not just in the sense of propriety, but that they're no longer necessary because we have something better. I pray, God, that we would be a people that don't settle for shadows, but live in the light. And I pray as well, Lord, that we would be that place of witness, that we would live with unexplainable joy, that the way that we treat our neighbors and the way that we find contentment and the way that we extend peace to other people would shatter the paradigms of the world around us, that they would begin to stir in their slumber and start to question if all that they know is all that there is. We recognize, Lord, that this is only done with your help, and so we pray that you would continue to teach us and speak to us and lead us and empower us by your Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we respond tonight and we worship, we'll sing songs together. For those of you who call the church home, the offering box is right up here um, for you to worship in that way. And then we have communion. And one of the ways that you put on the Lord Jesus Christ is with communion, right? Because what do we do? We remember. And so we take the bread that was broken and it was done for us. We're partakers of Jesus' sacrifice. And the covenant, the new covenant represented in, his, in, the, in the cup, in his blood, is everything God's made available to us in this relationship with him. And so we partake and we remind ourselves of these things we remember. And so make sure and do that tonight. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ as we worship tonight. Uh, let's do that now.